Monsters Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I'm joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny, Hot Toddy. Good to be with you again, friends, as we come back to a format that we haven't done in a little while. We are getting back to our true crime format, and tonight we are talking about a unique case. Uh, I'll let the professor explain it because it's got like 10 different names when you search for it. Like, what is it? Well, it's the disappearance of this. It's these murders. It's this, that, and the other. But the film is The Changeling. So, professor. Yeah, and as we go along with the this true crime format, some of these cases are going to become, I think, more and more obscure. Because obviously when you start out with some of these heavy hitters and movies you're familiar with and cases. Uh, but as we go along, uh, this is a probably a bigger movie. Release-wise, because um, Clint Eastwood was behind it, um, and it, it, it was a, a, a pretty big release. So in that aspect, it's it's bigger, but I think it also brought the case to everybody's attention that I, I wasn't aware of any of this before that movie came out. So this isn't so, you know, kind of a household uh, situation. Oh, so you weren't aware of it? No. That surprises me, especially yeah. with it being L.A. Yeah, and it's it, I, I find, too, that, and maybe you guys would agree with this, that when you get into... Uh, more traumatic stuff, especially with children, time seems to wash away those cases a little bit quicker. People don't really enjoy studying them and talking about them as much. And so I think um, that's part of why this one had already kind of drifted away. But it really is an interesting story. Um, In terms of you guys' uh, familiarity, movie or case before? Never heard of the case, never watched the movie. I knew the movie existed, but I'd never watched it. Uh, I watched the movie when it came out. Uh, I never, I wasn't familiar with the case till I watched the movie, so I had no idea what the movie was about as I watched it. Yeah, I, I remember my initial experience with this watching it and going, "Oh, true story, huh?" You know, because it's loosely with movies, and then look, looking into it and going, "Wow, I can't believe this hasn't been a bigger conversation point all when, these years." So. It- Usually when we do research for true crime, because I spend a lot of time in my truck, I try to find podcasts about that case. And uh, He's not a serial killer. I was going to say, we need to point out that's for a commute, uh, (laughs) not hanging out in strange places. (laughs) And, um, yeah, you know, I've just got my bag with my gloves and my rope in it. Um, And so, because I don't have time to do a lot of reading on the subject, and I'm telling you, I listened to two podcasts on this case, and then I watched the movie, and I was like, Holy shit! This movie's like beat for beat. I mean, with with few exceptions, Eastwood nailed it. Yeah. Um. So to give kind of an overview of the case that we're we're talking about here is it's it's two parallel stories that took place in the late twenties around Los Angeles with uh, the disappearance of a child, and then some shady ways that that was handled with the LAPD, which has a long history. Uh, especially that first half of the century, and then also a separate string of actual uh, murders and uh, sexual assault that took place um, around Los Angeles and Riverside County um, that kind of 
interweave. So with that said, we'll jump straight into it. So the, the bigger story of these two that reached across the country at the time uh, was the disappearance of Walter Collins. And so what occurred there, um, nine-year-old Walter Collins went missing on March 10th, 1928, uh, after his mother Christine had given him money to go to the cinema. Uh, his disappearance received nationwide attention, and the Los Angeles Police Department followed up on hundreds of leads without success. And the police faced negative publicity and increasing pressure uh, to solve this case as the months went by without progress. Now, where it gets really weird, and beyond just the sad, is five months after Walter's disappearance, a boy claiming to be Walter was found in Illinois. Letters and photographs were exchanged before Christine Collins paid for the boy to be brought back to Los Angeles. And during their sweet uh, reunion, uh, the mother quickly said, that's not my son. And under pressure to resolve the case, the officer in uh, charge, Captain J.J. Jones, convinced her to, quote-unquote, try the boy out. Give um, a trial run. Yeah, uh, by taking him home. She returned three weeks later again saying that this was not her son. And although she had dental records and uh, backings from friends to prove her case, Collins said Jones accused her of being a bad mother and bringing ridicule to the police. So he tried to politicize it to protect his own career. Uh, he then had Collins committed to the psychiatric ward at Los Angeles County Hospital under a Code 12 internment, which is a term used to jail or commit someone who is deemed difficult or an inconvenience. One of, the, one of my biggest fears in life yeah, it's, <laughs> is being locked away like that nobody knowing at like yeah and it's biggest fear. and yeah definitely chime in on these things when when you're feeling them because it's a sobering moment when you're reminded how quickly your liberties can be stripped away may i bring up uh other details besides dental records or did oh you yeah get, sure yeah so uh the boy was like three inches shorter than her boy mm-hmm. uh the boy was also circumcised and her son was not and a doctor came and was like yeah yeah, yeah these things happen Right. Like, uh, you know, trauma can shrink people. And it's like, yeah, maybe if the dude lost 20 pounds from trauma, but he's not going to shrink three inches, a growing boy. And then, like, the whole circumcision bit, the doctor was like, oh, you know, maybe some pervert did that to him because they like it. And that's how he ended up that way. How did they think? They could get away with this. Is the biggest question of it all. Honestly, I mean, we're going to get into this a lot more. But honestly, I mean, this is how they treated women back then. Oh yeah. And, I mean, and why why we're on uh, why we're stopped right here too? I just want to point out this is probably when I started learning what changeling meant because mm. I had never seen the George She's Scott movie either. So I like had no idea what any of these. It's a like, good point. Yeah, I had just watched Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, and it's a totally different. So, so I see all these. I see all these films with this title, and because uh, even when I watched it, I I wasn't quite sure. I just thought it was a movie about a, a haunting. Um, I had no idea what this movie was about, other than her son goes missing, and um, so I also learned what the term is um, because of the fact that. Um, you know, her son goes missing and they're trying to, you know, say this is their kid. And, and she's just like, this is not my son. So To your yeah. point, I don't think I really understood either uh, the real world application of the word until we watched the George C. Scott movie. Yeah, I guess we'll break real quickly right there. Um, so for those of you listening at home that aren't familiar with a lot of European folklore, the, the changeling referred to um, typically if you had a child that was not quite right. Or or in or no, the child was fine, but then as the child develops, it turns out not quite right. 
uh, because people were so, uh, I don't know, ableist back then that they were like, oh, clearly fairies stole my good kid and replaced him with this wonky kid, right? So maybe the kid develops a uh, a limp or maybe the kid um, is mentally challenged or something like that. And so they would refer to that as a changeling. They were like, that's really not my child. Fairies stole my child and gave us this fake one. Yeah. Unless you're the Kennedys and wealthy, and then you just make them go away forever. Yeah, so. boy, oh boy. <clears throat> I was told I was found in a mailbox. So. <laughs> <laughs> My dad always told me they brought the wrong baby home from the hospital. <laughs> so <laughs> Didn't psychologically affect me at all. <laughs> to, to put in perspective here, kind of as, as listeners are, are absorbing this in real time with us, what you're hearing is not Hollywood. This is the actual case, and so that's, that's what was so unique to when this movie came out thinking that so much of this had just been kind of ginned up for the screen. And then you go back and read it and you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like this, this really is real. This um, is bad news bears. So, uh, yeah, Jones had her, uh, committed and questioned the boy who admitted to being a 12 year old Arthur Hutchins jr. Who was a runaway from Iowa. Uh, Hutchins was picked up by police in Illinois. And when asked if he was Walter Collins, he first said no, but then said yes with his motive for posing as Collins, was to get to Hollywood so he could meet his favorite actor, Tom Mix. Now, uh, Christine was released 10 days after Hutchins admitted. Can, that I, he, can I pause you real quick? Yeah. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is that at one point in his childhood, Professor ran away and pretended to be the Lindbergh baby. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so that he could meet Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> Did you if I flipped the table over? <laughs> God damn it, I told you never to say that. But, uh, yeah, Tom Mix... Was a cowboy actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did over 200 films. Only nine of them were not silent films. Oh, so wow. he did like 191 silent films, and that's enough for this kid to be like, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I want to go meet this cowboy. If you guys see one tear in my eye, it's for two reasons. One, the upcoming material I'm going to have to discuss, but also the the Grizz just gave a Hollywood history involving silent film history. <laughs> The irony. Without being haunted, yeah. and it, it made me so happy. I better make a Charlie Chaplin joke. <laughs> yes. Um, Christine was released 10 days after Hutchins admitted that he was not her son and filed a lawsuit against the LAPD. She won the lawsuit against Jones and was awarded $10,800, which he never paid. Yeah. And so that is the portion of the story uh, for the initial disappearance of Walter um, and the absolute hell that the mother was put through. Uh, one thing that I realize now that I've, I've overlooked in this case is they initially thought a lot of this was tied to the father who is a piece of shit yeah um and they thought that maybe people had come after this child in retaliation for something that he had done i went in reality he died in prison didn't he yeah yeah but i I did gloss over that i want to make sure i mentioned that so any thoughts on on her experience or or the that portion of the case before i jump into the other did is, is there any reality to her getting the other women in the asylum released that the police had just thrown away that i'm not sure of yeah. i looked around for it but i couldn't yeah, find any no podcast talked about that either i i did want to touch on the asylum part because um just recently i've been doing some of the like local ish ghost hunts uh well first off any any place you go to says asylum because it sells better but a lot of these places are actually poor houses um, so like the, the local one around like Randolph County in Winchester, um, that was a poor house. And then we went to the Eloise, which is in Michigan, which started out as a poor house and then went to an asylum. 
but it's crazy, especially for women, how many women would um, get thrown in these places just for being a widow, mm. uh, speaking out, uh, being single, not married, uh, basically anything that somebody didn't like, they would just go throw them in these uh, places. Um, the Eloise uh, allegedly has a haunting of a 13-year-old girl that died there just because uh, she got thrown in there because she had uh, epileptic uh, seizures. So. Mm. I was in my early 20s before I knew, and I grew up in a very small town, but before I knew that there was any kind of a negative connotation to the word hysterical. And then I found out how that was you that term was used against women a lot to dismiss concerns and and emotions that they had and and uh, for diagnosis reasons like this. So I was in my early twenties before I knew there was any anything connected with that that was negative. So that was a learning experience for me. Which is as what well. translated to modern day just calm down. Yeah. Calm down. <laughs> right. Right. <clears throat> um, I yeah, it's just it's baffling. It's it's baffling to know the true case. It's baffling to watch the film and see how well it's portrayed. Um, like Vinny, you're the only parent. What if? <laughs> oh man, the, these are tough. And and as I'm watching this movie, I'm immediately reminded of the West Memphis Three case that we covered here within the last year, which has stayed with me quite a bit quite a bit and uh was very very emotionally taxing for me and i i don't say that for any sympathy because i can only imagine then being the parent who had to live through this shit i cannot when the scene and i know i'm getting into the movie a little bit but the scene where she comes home and discovers that he's not there and i start to feel that panic Along with her, and I, I just, I can't imagine. I, I can't imagine. I, I, I don't want to imagine. And, and, but at the same time, as a parent, it is difficult you to separate yourself from what is happening on screen with that kind of thing. It's terrifying. And, and at this point, we're talking about people who have been gone for how long now? Yeah. And. My sympathy is no less real for them, you know, than if they were sitting here today and it happened yesterday. I just, uh, I can't imagine. And, and I, I, it hurts to know that anybody has had to gone through that. And then to know how many people have had to gone through something like this is just haunting. It's yeah. haunting. And then to add on top of it, having your life destroyed even further, like, yeah. You know, criminalizing you. Well, well, allow me to add. We haven't even gotten to a point yet. Right now, we're just talking the disappearance. Yeah. And that alone had me feeling so anxious. We haven't even gotten into what comes into the rest of this story. Yeah. That makes it just even worse. Yeah. So yeah, just from a historical perspective. So stick around, everybody. Yeah, yeah it's going to get cheerier. <laughs> from a historical perspective, I think it also helps kind of with the, the, the sobering reality that this isn't that long ago. And like, while it is, it isn't. You know, we're in the movie, they portrayed uh, them uh, even at the end of it um, with, with betting pools for the Academy Awards that they're listening to on the radio. It's not that long ago. This is around the time of women fighting for their own rights to vote. And um, it's just... 
yeah, it's it's not that long ago, and it's just it's really it's scary to watch. Now, in fairness, that was also in an era and a place where authority was a mess. Um, there's a reason organized crime never conquered Los Angeles. Can't buy off people that are already doing their own. It was a mess. So, yeah. um, but anyways, I'll jump into uh, the case here. Now, I will say there, uh, for the sake of the listeners, and uh, just in the name of, of facts and truth, there's really not much of the unpleasant details here to be shared, uh, just because they're really not pertinent to the case. And it's all basically what we know for the most part, other than a small portion of evidence that was gathered, is uh, from the words of liars. Yeah. Um, so between that, there's really not a lot of uh, incidents to go beat for beat on it. Um, but basically, the case that directly ties into this um, and is basically widely believed to be the answer on Walter Collins' disappearance is the Wineville Chicken Murders, or the uh, there's like 10 other names for it, the Wineville Chicken Coop Murders. Uh, but there were a series of abductions and murders of young boys that occurred in L.A. and in Riverside County uh, between 1926 and 1928. Uh, the murders were carried out by a 19-year-old farmer who had moved to California from Canada uh, two years prior and had the aid of his mother and nephew. Um, Gordon Stewart Northcott was born and raised in Canada and moved to L.A. with his parents in 24. Two years later, at the age of 19, he asked his father to purchase a plot of land in the community of Wineville, which is located in Riverside County where he built a chicken ranch and a house with the help of his father and nephew, 11-year-old Sanford Clark. It was under this pretext that Northcott brought nephew Clark to the U.S. Uh, Upon the boy's arrival at the ranch, Northcott began to immediately physically and sexually abuse uh, his nephew. In August of 28, out of concern for his welfare, uh, Sanford's 19-year-old sister, Jessie, visited him at the Wineville Ranch. At that time, Clark told her that he feared for his life. One night, while Northcott was asleep, Jessie learned from Clark that they had murdered four boys at his ranch. ranch, And once she returned to Canada a week later, Jessie informed an American consul there of Northcott's crimes, uh, who then wrote a letter to the LAPD detailing Jessie's sworn complaint uh, but because there was initially some concern over um, an immigration issue, the LAPD punted and kicked off to uh, immigration services to determine the facts relating to the complaint and where it really ramped up and, and where we actually learn some of what occurred out here. Uh, on August 31st, 1928, immigration services inspectors visited the ranch. Northcott, having seen the agents driving up the long road to his ranch, fled into the tree line at the edge of his property telling his nephew to stall them and threatening to shoot him from the tree line with a rifle if he didn't comply. Uh, For the next two hours, while Clark stalled, Northcott kept running. Uh, Finally, when Clark felt that the agents could protect him, he told them that Northcott had fled. Uh, At that point, Northcott and his mother, Sarah Louise, fled to Canada but were arrested near Vernon, British Columbia. And in September 1928, um, it led to Clark testifying at Sarah Louise's sentencing that Northcott had kidnapped, molested, beaten, and killed three young boys with the help of his mother and Clark himself. Clark also testified about the murder of a fourth young man, a Mexican citizen, whose decapitated head Northcott had forced Clark to dispose of by burning it in a fire pit and then crushing the skull. Northcott stated that he had left the headless body by the side of the road because he had no other place to put it. And he stated that quicklime was used to dispose of the remains and that the bodies were buried on the ranch. So that is that is the the, the core, the crux of this case and what they had to work on. Um, and I, I'm going to skim over some of this stuff as we finish up because a lot of it, they just changed their tune. And I'm, I'm not going to bore you guys with them changing their story over and over and over again. Another thing about this case and the time frame is 
I think that we are painted a picture of our past, especially in America, where things were pure, things were good, things were better. And the reality is, reality is people have always been awful. Oh, yeah. No matter what era you're going to look into, these kinds of things are happening because people are always awful. Yeah. We were just talking on the car ride up and, and uh, that how much, I don't know, just kind of been digging into Richmond's history. And there's just like, man, like we apparently invented roller skates and, and all this crazy stuff. And we just don't talk about anything. And I think there's a reason because we I, I just went to a panel um, for Black History Month. And, you know, we're like basically almost like, I don't know that we're the birthplace of jazz, but man, all these blues artists came through and recorded all these records, and then we don't talk about that either. But, you know, I'm finding out that, you know, these big uh, blues artists are recording there, and then they're also letting in the KKK to record too, and you can guess which artists they asked to leave. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a reason that a lot of this history we don't talk about and we glaze over and we erase, which is also why we're like, well, they pure back then. We don't need to talk mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, yeah, and and it... It allows a generation to kind of sweep its shortcomings under a rug mm-hmm. and say, oh, these kids today, you know, it's like, no, y'all were fucked up too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the what's the quote? I'm paraphrasing here, but basically history is written by the winners. Yeah. It's yeah. like we continually kind of adapt and change how we want to look back on things, mm-hmm. which also plays directly into what I said earlier, which is some things are just painful. Yeah. And they kind of inadvertently drift away without somebody dictating that just because they don't want to talk about it right and see why this would have happened yeah i mean it's a it's a crazy story yeah um so as this uh snowballed and the authorities uh ended up out there they found three shallow graves at the ranch exactly where clark had stated they were these graves did not contain complete bodies but only parts uh clark and his sister jesse testified that northcott and his mother had exhumed the bodies on the evening of august 4th a few weeks before clark was taken into protective custody they had taken the bodies to a deserted area where it is believed they were most likely just burned in the night. The complete bodies were never recovered. Um, the evidence found in the graves enabled the authorities to conclude most likely that Walter Collins, two brothers named Lewis and Nelson Winslow, aged 12 and 10, and the unidentified fourth victim had all been murdered. The body parts in Clark's testimony resulted in a death sentence for Gordon Northcott and life imprisonment for Sarah Louise, who was paroled in 1940. She died in 44. Uh, Canadian police arrested Northcott and his mother on September 19th, and, but due to errors in the extradition paperwork, they were not returned to L.A. until November. Um, and while they were being held in British Columbia, waiting their, awaiting their extradition to California, uh, the bullshit started. They started confessing to murders, but then they started changing their tune. Um, and at one point, the mother point blank said, we killed Walter Collins. Yeah. Um, but... She retracted her confession, as did Northcott, who confessed to killing more than five boys. Um, and you have a lot of that where it goes back and forth all the way up, um, leading until the prosecution of Gordon. Um, so they pulled an Eileen Warnos. Yeah, pretty much. Um, he was implicated in the murder of Walter Collins, but because his mother had already confessed and been sentenced for it, uh, the state chose to not prosecute Gordon for that murder. So there's just, just kind of weird technicality that distance the real killer uh, from the name. Um, it was speculated that Gordon may have killed as many as 20 boys, but the state of California could not produce evidence to support that speculation. Ultimately, the state only brought an indictment against Gordon for the murders of an unidentified underage Mexican national known as the Headless Mexican 
and the brothers Lewis and Nelson Winslow, uh, who had been reported from Pomona on May 16, 1928. In early 1929, Gordon's trial was held before Judge Freeman in Riverside County, California. The jury heard that he kidnapped, molested, tortured, and murdered the Winslow brothers. On February 8, 1929, this 27-day trial ended with Gordon being convicted of those murders. On February 13th, Freeman sentenced him to death, and he was hanged on October 2nd, 1930 at San Quentin. He was 23 years old. And then um, kind of the aftermath of this is uh, Wineville changed its name to Mira Loma, Loma uh, on November 1st, 1930, so right after it, but in large part, uh, they still have things intact there. You got Wineville Avenue, Wineville Road, Wineville Park, other geographical references provide reminders of the old community. Wineville Winery? Yep. <laughs> um, Clark returned to Saskatoon where city records indicate that he died on uh, June 20, 1991. So there again kind of taps us into wow. how this wasn't that long ago. Yeah. So the young nephew had a full life and hopefully wasn't completely tortured by all that. <clears throat> Um, and then lastly, um, Christine, back to the mother of missing Walter, I became hopeful that her son Walter might still have been alive after her first interview with Gordon Northcott. She asked him if he had killed her son, and after listening to his repeated lies, confessions, and recantations, she concluded that he was insane. Uh, because he did not seem to know whether he had even met Walter, much less killed him, she clung to the hope that Walter was still alive. Uh, Northcott sent Christine a telegram shortly before his execution saying he had lied when he denied that. Uh, denied that Walter was among his victims, and he promised to tell the truth if she came in person to hear it just a few, few hours before the execution. She visited him, but upon her arrival, he balked and said, I don't want to see you. He said when she confronted him, I don't know anything about it. I'm innocent. And a news account said that the distraught woman was outraged by Northcott's cond- conduct, but was also comforted by it. Uh, Northcott's ambiguous replies and his seeming refusal to remember such details as Walter's clothing and the color of his eyes gave her continued hope that her son still lived, which I always found terribly sad that this woman was just looking for anything to hang on to and use those details in those last moments of that's it. That's all she's got. Yeah, it's interesting because typically folks want closure, mm-hmm. right? And we all understand that. Um, but it's interesting, the, the way the film spun it, it's seen, and I know we're going to get to the film, and I don't know if this translated to her real life, but it seemed like she was just hopeful that he was alive for him being alive's sake, not that she would ever see him again. Like that's the kind of my takeaway. It was yeah. almost, it was a strange hopeful. It was like you know what, I don't have any proof that he's dead. I hope he's alive, and you know wherever he is, he's happy. Yeah. You know, like that sort of idea. Like I don't, I don't need to know that he's dead. Uh, you know, best of luck to him. Yeah, it's like this uh, in, inherently maternal instinct of, of hoping that hers is okay. Yeah. Um, but also that, it, like, you know, it, at first witness of that, you're just like, man, she's not in a good place. But then you then it's actually kind of sweet. Yeah. And you kind of think, like, okay, this is no different than picking someone else's faith apart for, for what helps them through something. Good Leave deal. them alone. And that's kind of the, the feeling you get with her at the end of the movie. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting... Yeah, yeah, and it's everybody's grief is their own. Um, as someone who's counseled a lot of people through grief, everybody's grief is their own. And uh, there have been times where I've almost had to take like a Hippocratic oath approach uh, from a pastoral standpoint, and like you know, what you believe is not a really good belief. But if that's comforting you in the loss of this loved one, I'm going to let you have that. I'm not here to pick that apart to say 
you know, well, actually, you'd feel better if you thought this way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like if the only way you will exit this burning house is to smoke a crack rock while you do it, come on. Yeah. But by all means, <laughs> get you out of that. By all means, let me get yep. you another one. Yeah. yeah. Any more uh, thoughts on the uh, actual case or her experience before we jump in? When, when did she pass away? I think she was early 60s. I don't have the date, yeah. but I want to say it was it was early 60s. Yeah, that's what I remember. Mm. I think that's what's, that's the ambiguity of what happened to him to me is bothersome. I can't imagine living your everyday just not knowing one way or the other. I just but again, if that's what she found comfort in, that's how she's able to do it, but that ate me up at the end too as a parent. I just can't imagine living the rest of my life with not knowing. Yeah. I mean, I'm on the fence. Like, I, if you're not if you're not going to find any remains and stuff, I don't know that I would want to. If he did die that way, and and you're not going to know for sure, I don't think I would want to think that that's yeah. how he died. Yeah. And I don't know if I know in the film that the one some of the kids say that he saved them. So I don't know if that was true or not. But if that's the case, I would want I would want to remember my kid right. that way. Right. Yeah. Dying a hero. Yeah, but uh. You know, I'm again. You know, I, I weirdly was talking about um, a local case last night. Um, that you know, I, I, it has to be hard not to know exactly what happened because at this point, I think everybody kind of knows what happened to that person. But, um, but to me, I would always want to kind of cling to hope that they're still alive. But um, I think at some point too, you you kind of are owed, you know. That they're if they're dead, that they're actually dead. You talking about the famous disappearance yes. from our hometown? Yeah, which yeah. there's there's apparently that's, been a recent update. I was gonna say that's actually a really good comparison because in in the overall scheme of things, the way I view this with her in this case is that the mother Christine she has basically ninety percent of her answer. Yeah, we we've we've basically located enough information. Um, even if some of the sources are not trustworthy between that and what's discovered there lining up, we basically know this is what occurred, but we don't know for sure. And so, you know, she knows the 90%, but the 10% gets her through the day. And so I I think that's, it's very similar to with, with the woman that went missing in Richmond, because we've learned a lot about what transpired and where potentially where it's like we're we're pretty sure on all that, but we're not. Yeah. And so you kind of just hope you use that little bit. So it's you know you just worry in the in those those moments that uh, the the people uh, are are remembering the ninety percent and not letting it drive them actually insane with hope. Yeah. But it's a it's a wildly interesting case. I mean from from the the, the bizarre behavior of the LAPD and her experience with that to the absolute tragic macabre shit occurring out in the desert at this ranch that is just horrendous and I'll be honest I started the book um, and I didn't finish it I, which I don't do very often I, I threw in the towel it's like not in the middle headspace for, for this right now I was like this is too much it's brutal just the sexual well, yeah. abuse of this boy is relentless and it's him telling it yeah and it's I mean it's tough ugh yuck yeah Sorry, you stole anything I had. My thoughts away from me. I just thought, oh man, that's loan it to Vinny. Sound, yeah, <laughs> fuck that, fuck that. I don't yeah, know what I was that, that's a, that's my coverage for the case. So, yeah, well done, well done. 
another. Oh, I was going to say was it's it's bad enough that this woman was a victim <coughs> of losing and her child, and then to be victimized again by the people who are supposed to be helping you, right? And they're supposed to be helping everybody, yeah. And you have to fight them along with that. You're victimized by them right. as well. well. Well, not only that, but and this is another thing too that's that's strange is is I don't even know if like five years ago I probably didn't even know what the term gaslighting was, mm. but like they're they're yes lit- you did. <laughs> oh, I, I get it. I get it. Get it. I was gaslighting. Uh, uh, <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> but uh, I mean, not only are you going through that, but like because. Uh, I, I think you and, and I'm not the biggest fan of Angelina Jolie, but like in in the movie, she sells it in the and the, um, when when she's institutionalized because I I feel like you can kind of almost see where she's just almost kind of giving up because yeah. even when she's trying to give them what they want to hear, it's like she knows she's not going to win because he's like oh well just a second ago um, because yeah. he, they're basically telling them like you know you know you're a bad mom like you know they're just twisting everything and and gaslighting her and um you know so she's already going through all this shit and then she has to put up with with the cops trying to cover up their you know their mistakes so that's like the 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 worst worst thing in in life that could happen to you is losing your child and then they're going to take your life away from you too it's like oh no here, let us help you with this by institutionalizing you. What an absolute nightmare. And I also think, to your point, that's one of the reasons I've never seen this movie is because I also am not a very big Angelina Jolie fan. Uh, but Yeah, I noticed you guys don't stop by my website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a thing. It's like, uh, hey, do you want to sit down and watch a two-and-a-half-hour drama starring Angelina Jolie? I'm like, not high on my list. Right. You know? And I, when so, I was started watching the movie, I hadn't paid attention to the runtime, and I was getting later in the evening, and I pushed pause. I said, holy shit. Couldn't believe how much more movie there was left. But it wasn't taxing, uh, and I was, in, I was interested the entire time. You, generally, if I have a few notes in my... Should we properly introduce the movie? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Okay. Uh, so, Changeling, 2008, directed by Clint Eastwood, starring Angelina Jolie, Colm Fair, Amy Ryan, John Malkovich, and Jeffrey Donovan. John Malkovich. <laughs> we, we recently talked Jeffrey Donovan from Blair Witch 2. We're on the Chamberlain from Dark Crystal. <laughs> I hate your wine. Uh, anyway, so I sit down. It was a long movie, but it wasn't taxing at all. And uh, Angela, by the by, not long into the movie, Angelina Jolie had melted away from me, and it was that character. Oh yeah. So she to to, to her credit, yeah, she made me forget that she was. That's a problem I have with a lot of super famous actors. Mm-hmm. Is it's hard to get. For them to get out of their own way, just for me, when I go into it, I see them as that person. But no, to her credit, as an actor, I it, I forgot it was her. Yep, she did phenomenal. Yeah, I'd say between this and then uh, she directed Unbroken, which is an amazing movie, and the stuff she did behind the scenes for that film, because that's a true story, too, about mm-hmm. the pilot that gets lost at sea. But she like that guy was on his deathbed, and she made sure that he got to see the film and everything. Because she's also doesn't always get, you know... She's not known for some of her humane things, but um, I think between these two films, she kind of redeems herself a little bit. And what's the movie 
is it with Winona Ryder? Is it Girl Interrupted? Yes. Yeah. I, I just now thought of that, that she kind of had a background this is there. The, this that. is the prequel. Gotcha. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, yeah, and just from the top, I mean, if you have any remote interest in this film, I know we're going to do closing out stuff at the end, but like, I can't recommend this film enough. I mean, it, it is acted perfectly. I mean, every every single person in every single role, nail it. I mean, from her to um, the kid the, the, the that comes from the, the farm, mm-hmm. the chicken farm. I mean, like, so, I mean, when he's telling his story and talking about what they did to those other kids, I mean, it's heart-wrenching. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, everyone acted their asses off in this film. And Eastwood directed the hell out of it, you know? And so it's a really well-made film. I mean, it's not a, it's not a fun. Uh, no. <laughs> I wouldn't call this a Friday night movie. No. But, but it's, it's so worth seeing. Yeah. My, my, my dad, uh, I'm trying to think if he, he might have sat down when I first put this on even and watched the whole movie. Because did they, did they give the guy a couple months in his sentencing because he was pissed I think he kind of forgot the time period though, because they're like, "Yeah, they're gonna hang your ass though," because <laughs> oh. he's like too like he was like enraged <laughs> that they're only giving this guy like this short amount of time, but it's like because we're gonna hang you. That was <laughs> uh, a heavy scene in different ways to watch him be taken to his execution, and the fact that they somehow get sympathy out of you a little bit for this fucking monster. Because of just the sheer terror that, like... I drank it like a milkshake. (laughs) (laughs) I was like... You were over there. Yeah. I drank your milkshake. Oh, man. When he was was whining like a little bitch, I was like, good, die slow. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that's there. But on the other hand, as a human being, just watching the fear, knowing what's getting ready to happen to him, like, it does touch a human part of you. Even though he's this fucking monster and you want to see him meet his end, they still, I think, do a good job of of kind of pulling on you just even slightly. Because we're all fucking human. We're all human beings. Mm -hmm. And and, and I think it also... Even when somebody's a fucking monster, it's not completely black and white. Mm. Jeffrey Dahmer was a fucking monster and still had a father who loved him until the day that he died and and beyond. You know? And well, and and to your point here, which is partially why I'm against the death penalty, for one of the many reasons I'm against the death penalty, is that this guy, I mean, according to the stories, he was also just abused physically and sexually by his parents growing up. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, he's fucked up because people fucked him up. You yeah. know what I mean? And that doesn't excuse his behavior. It At explains all. it. But yeah. also to add to our previous discussion, even morality aside... I'm a big facts guy, and that's why I always have had a problem with the death penalty. It's not about being yeah. self-righteous. It's about what did we just discuss? How crooked the LAPD is right. and how they could literally throw somebody into being institutionalized with no yep. basis in reality. Yep. So then you add in the fact that we also are permitting them to kill people legally. It's nuts. Yeah. So, and, and I also think especially that, this, in that era, films like this are good because I think it's important to put a spotlight on how fucking crooked the LAPD was. Some argue is make sure motherfuckers still know that, that that's what our hit. That's what our real history is. Keep bringing that shit up. Keep bringing it up. And they should be embarrassed by it. They should continue to be reminded of what their past Mm -hmm. is. So I, I, and same when we did the West Memphis three episode, keep bringing this up, 
keep showing the injustice that was done. Wasn't it interesting to see white people angry at the police? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's be honest. Yeah. You know, oh, like, like, oh, huh, isn't this strange? Yeah. Um, we're not anti-cop, by the way. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but the, the corruption. The, yeah, the corruption. exactly. Fuck the police. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Actually, NWA wrote that song based on this case. Uh, you better stop right now. <laughs> Um, Finally, we got to make a joke. <laughs> Let's lighten the mood a little bit here. Hey, neither podcast I listened to brought up uh, Reverend Gustav Briglieb, the Presbyterian pastor who helped her. Um, and I looked it up, and that's all true. Mm-hmm. Like, but it, it, that that gets swept under the rug a little bit. And like, I know I'm a little partial because I am clergy, but it's nice to see clergy being the good guy in a film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he used his position for good yeah. and put himself in an uncomfortable situation in, in crosshairs quite frankly yeah. to, to be doing a, a weekly radio broadcast that spotlighted a corrupt police force like are you, that's that's balls oh yeah that's balls and it's it's a reminder that that used to be a thing you know uh, of mm-hmm. pastors and ministers and priests using their voice for those causes mm-hmm. and it's it as time has changed Throughout our country and and the, the 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 evolution of Christendom in America and yeah, it, it gives me a headache. I mean, we could be here all day. I could be here all day. Now we have about Greg that. Locke. <laughs> well, yeah, right. Who says you know that there are tunnels under Washington D.C. where or Democrats are raping and eating babies? Right. Equally productive things. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting though because he, he used that. He used you scared me. He used, uh, he used that platform to kind of push past the only level within Los Angeles to to be safe against the wrath of the police force because he had just enough clout that he could bring that attention uh, to really anything that he believed in, and in, in a large part, maybe the only reason we're talking about this case today. So I'm glad you brought that up because the movie certainly does it justice, but history has not. Yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe if he doesn't help her, who knows where she'd be? Yeah. Does she get out? Yeah. Does she? Does she ever get any kind of attention for this? Um, and Malkovich is great in the role. Oh, kills and it. it. And it's nice to see him on on Team Clint this time in, instead of in the line of fire. Yeah. Is there anything <laughs> you can think of off the top of your head that John Malkovich is not good in? He may be in a shitty movie, but is Malkovich bad in it? That's fair. I mean, come on, even as the bad guy in Con Air. Well, that's a good <laughs> Cyrus the damn virus. <laughs> He's so good in that. Um, I want to say, too, it is, it, the crazy thing is, is even as she has the wrong kid, she wasn't even trying to throw that kid out. She was still like, I'll take she care of this kid. She could have been more understanding and patient. Yeah. I'll take care of this kid. It's not my kid. Um, and, and even though it was deceit, that kid's kind of quick on his feet yeah. to... Hey, Tom Mix was a hell of a star. To be like, yeah, to, to like quickly see the, how he could use this opportunity. Like, he's pretty, that's pretty bright. That kid went on to start a chain of hotels, a university, a state company. <laughs> he says bright. <laughs> I was thinking more of you comparing him to me again. There at first. Boss trying to go meet Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> Um, hey, one actor I want to point out here that that I don't think ever gets the credit that he deserves, but that's Michael Kelly. Are any of you familiar with the name Michael Kelly? 
He's the guy who plays the agent that goes out and gets the okay. kid from the chicken farm in the beginning. And Not then, the butthole cop who looks like an alternate version of the guy from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? <laughs> no, not that okay. one. Poor yeah. man's Mac. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, Michael Kelly, uh, I first became really aware of him in House of Cards. Um, he's in that new Jack Ryan show. Um, but he's in a lot of, and when he pops up, you're like, oh man, that guy. He's a great actor, and I think he kills it in everything that he's in, and him playing that agent here who finally, you know, they're like, hey, just let it go, forget about it, and then him saying, you know what, I, I got to interview this kid some more. Yeah. I, I thought that was a good character, and it was, it was well played. Would you guys say that there's any other elements in the movie, because I'm really glad you mentioned Malkovich and, and that performance, because... I probably would have overlooked it, even talking about the movie just now. But when you say it, he's fantastic. Well, I mean, and and it's, it's so important. And when I think of pillars of the film, that's one of the pillars, right? Like because you get so sure. wrapped up in the mother, the missing child, and the horrible atrocities that you forget that there's this person that helped. Yeah, yeah, and it, I think that's what elevates the film to a more like epic status. That there's so there's so much at play to tell this story. Yeah. Because I, I feel like if, if there's other things that you guys think that are in the movie um, that aren't as pertinent in the in the coverage of the case, we should mention it. Because otherwise, this pretty much hits on most of the stuff that I just said with the case. I mean, it's it stays pretty true uh, to the facts. I, I would say just even the detail to man, like it looks like even the time period of LA. I was about to say the oh, same yeah. thing. And, and, and I love a period piece that does it well. And, well, and and. and you know, I'm sure Eastwood would know, and then the music, because Eastwood's a big music guy too, and then you know that's probably right up his alley as well. So it's perfectly somber. I mean, it's he he's got such his finger on the pulse of jazz usually, but this reminded me the music reminded me so much of Unforgiven, kind of that brutal, bleak mm-hmm. but haunting. The music's just wonderful in it, and you're right. The production design for recreating that era is incredible. Oh yeah, and it's never flashy. Like you're never watching it with the big crane shots and things sweeping over portions of the city to let you know L.A. is older. Hey. It's just you exist and you're there, and it's. And all I'm sure so those kind of things are hard sells to a studio because that is expensive. Yeah, to do that correctly Very. is expensive, and. I have a pretty keen eye when I'm watching stuff to pick things out that shouldn't be there era wise, and I couldn't. I not that I was searching for it, but nothing stood out to me. Like it looked like it was done very well, and you say that too. The the colors, just the way it was shot, because it it was muted. Mm-hmm. It was definitely muted. I especially like how we fade in from black and white. Mm-hmm. And then it slowly gets into color. Like it takes you to that what we know is that time period because obviously all we've ever seen it as is on screen and it's black and white. So I thought that was <coughs> clever as well to bookend. Now I thought you were old enough that you would have been there. <laughs> you would think from the antenna television that we had and all the black and white reruns I watched. Now, Professor, have you seen uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? <laughs> <laughs> I am. I'm trying to get better about slowing down on the rewatches because I'm like entering savant status at this point with it. <laughs> this was like the way that they, how well they portrayed LA and this was like a less fun version of that. In yeah. that it was they, they showed you every every day LA. 
in yes. this and for that time period. Like every person's LA, like riding the tram, taking the kid to school, going home to your neighborhood, like that sort of thing. As you said, they weren't doing these wide sweeping grand look at fabulous Hollywood and Beverly Hills. No, it was it was no, this is where people live and work every day. Yeah. Which is especially before the industry had completely taken over. I yeah. mean in nineteen twenty eight there's still a lot of people moving out there for the weather where they can shoot year round because film was always centered around New York prior to that. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's still booming, but there's still a lot of middle-class, you know, normal existence, people trying to make it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting in that aspect. He doesn't lean into the easy cheap stuff that he could kind yeah. of with landmark. Right, right. Right. For sure. Uh, one thing I thought was neat just because it was pointed out to me on a podcast was when she's roller skating around at the phone operator place. Cause you know, we always think of like hee haw and the, the switchboard operator, you Mm -hmm. know, but think about a town like LA and what they had to do to get to do all the switchboard work. Literally those supervisors had to strap on those roller skates to their high heels and skate around to make sure all these connections were working. My, my paternal grandmother was a, a phone operator before she married my grandfather on BR five, four, nine. She was, she, well, my, my grandma was born in 1916. So oh, that wow. tells you the era she was, yeah, yeah, yeah. she was working. It was right. Not too far from that. So it's that attention to detail. Like that's really something that people did. And that was mm-hmm. gainable employment for women at the time. And yeah. again, because they're still so fashion conscious that they need to wear heels to be in the workforce, they were still strapping roller skates to those heels to skate around places. Yeah. Could you imagine like having a bad day? Like just busting your ass. Like, oh, Annie's fallen into the desk again. Yeah, that's her fourth sprained ankle this month. Yeah, that's also early documentation of how uh, ridiculous the Academy Awards are because uh, it happened one night, like Cleared House. It's such an average movie. Fuck the Academy. Um, yeah, I think those are my only notes. I just, I really like uh, that Todd brought that point up earlier about if the last memory she gets to keep is of her son helping the other kids escape, um, there's something very touching about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And it's very touching how they, they finish out the movie, just period, with, with her kind of interaction. And you think about all that's led to, to you sitting as a viewer, sharing that moment mm-hmm. with her experience. And the people that that didn't help her and those who did, and just it's just really touching the way they finish it out. Yeah. Well, they always and you're not beating over the head with it, but they keep showing you her boss is there throughout various points of the movie. Even when he doesn't even really have dialogue, you see her showing up to like was it the courthouse and he's outside, as, mm. like just little things like that. I thought they didn't beat you over the head with it, but there it was. And, and visually you see who is standing yeah. by her through the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I personally, for me, I think it's her best performance. Sure. Um, I know that I'm sure there are people that would disagree with that, but I think, um, it got completely, I don't know, have you seen the Eternals? I think it got completely, uh, just kind of overlooked, um, for, for being a Clint Eastwood movie and, and her star power. Um, she's really good at it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it, as Vinny said, she was very believable. Like to me, like no, I think so. But it I got, think just publicly, I yeah. think she got overlooked for it. But yeah. yeah, it never won anything. But it got nominated for tons of stuff. Yeah, she even looks. Yes, like that's the point I was going to make. Yeah, like she, like in her flapper dress and her hat and all that stuff. I'm like, man, she just she looks like she walked out of a time machine, right? Yeah. And I think that's I think Eastwood specifically went after it for that. Like yeah. he felt like she looks 
like she could be from that era. Yeah. When you look at old black and white photos. But yeah, I hope us doing this podcast maybe gets some some new viewers for the movie and learning of the case too. And Walter Collins, if you're out there, buddy, we're pulling for you. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> You'd be yes. a hundred. Yeah, yeah, you hundred and ten year old man. <laughs> I haven't uh, watched this, by the way, but I do want to mention. It. I made note of it. Um, one of the plot lines of American Horror Story Hotel centers around the murders. It's uh, according to the internet. I've never watched this season, but it says in a oh, flashback, hey, "Don't." The, in, a, in a flashback, the son of Miss Evers, maid of the hotel, Cortez, is abducted by a man on Halloween. The surrounding events imply her son was one of Gordon Northcott's unidentified victims. Huh. I, but again, I haven't seen it. That's so the only interesting thing I've heard about that season. <laughs> yeah, I got like three or four episodes in, and I was like, "This is dookie." It's <laughs> kitchen sink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah, they try everything. They tried H eight. They tried H eight Holmes that Holmes. season. Yep. I'd imagine at some point they tried to get some cheap heat with like the Elisa Lamb because it's it's essentially the Hotel Cecil, right? With throwing in everything from L A. Y'all, gotcha. they had, y'all, they had a ghost uh, that well, was on social. Media. It would have been good if that's all it was, but it, it mainly centered around vampires. That's right. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And so you also get the Lady Gaga vampire. You guys line. literally, I after reading this, I was like, I guess it's time for me to watch this. Interesting. No. You guys literally just no. sold me away from it's, it in under thirty seconds. I never watched it. It, it, it could garbage. have been good, but it's garbage. It, yeah. Yeah. Don't and call there's, me there's, there's vampire kids. <laughs> if you saw that annoying. I think it's Geico where there's a annoying Peter Pan kid. He's in it and he turns into a vampire and starts turning all these kids into vampires that goes nowhere. And sounds like that, Dookie is. I up. think that we just need to do an episode where we shit on seasons of American Horror Story. <laughs> we should talk about. It. There's good. There's good seasons. There's great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, great is a no. There's, uh, there's good seasons. 1984 <laughs> is a great season. I haven't, I haven't I seen that one. Yes. I like the third one yeah. a lot. Freak show? Okay. No. Oh, Kevin. Yeah. yeah, I was like, I was like, that's one of my favorite. The first one's very good. Nineteen eighty four, I thought was amazing. Yeah, All right. um, yeah. <laughs> wait, 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 Sorry, wait. Please, guys. Hey, back, back to Clint Eastwood. Once we talked about Walter Collins being out there, I had to change. The uh, Angelina Angelina Jolie did win awards for this movie, just not Oscars. It was other award shows that probably isn't so programmed. Razzies. Probably just no kidding, Razzies. Not Razzies. Probably got a SAG award or something. Yeah. So, but I just remember even back within a couple of years of this coming out when I mentioned it, nobody ever heard of it. Yeah. It just went away so quickly. And it's kind of been in the chamber. I knew we needed to cover bigger cases doing true crime, but sure. I've always had this in the back of my head. So I'm really glad we covered it. And hey, we gave everybody a break by not doing the one I wanted to cover. So Ooh, we're yeah. saving oh, that for Grizz yeah. will be narrating that one. Yippee skippy. All, All right. right. I'm busy that day. <laughs> I'll be washing my hair. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, hey, closing out for another true crime installment of the Midwest Monsters podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner. I've been joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny, Hot Toddy. Stay scary. <laughs>